Good morning. If we haven't met, my name is Emily Schultz. I'm one of the pastors here at New Denver. And today we are beginning a new three-week series looking at the book of Numbers. If you've been reading the Bible in a year with us, then you may know we start Numbers tomorrow. And so if you've gotten lost somewhere in Leviticus, just skim real quick today and catch up. It's fine. You won't miss much. I mean, you'll miss... God's holiness and his heart for justice and how to be the people of God. But there's plenty more where that came from in Numbers and Deuteronomy, so just do it. Just skim and catch up. Skim the Bible in a year. Maybe that's a good goal for you. But then tomorrow, when you get to Numbers, slow down and read carefully, because Numbers is a really underrated book. Today, I want to help us just get our bearings. I want us to zoom out and trace the storyline of what we've read in the Bible so far up to this point, as well as give us a bird's eye view of the first part of Numbers. We'll look a little closer at one really key passage that helps set the stage for the rest of the book. And then we'll switch gears and spend some time tugging at a few threads that are woven throughout the book of Numbers. All this should help you understand what you're reading a bit more when you start tomorrow. So today is a big picture guide to the book of Numbers. Sound good? Cool. Here is a quick snapshot of what we've read in the Bible so far this year. This will help orient us as to where we are when we get to the book of Numbers. So in Genesis, God creates the world and humans, and then he chooses one particular human to bless. That's Abraham. God gives Abraham a blessing. God tells Abraham that someday he'll give him land, even though he's currently asking Abraham to leave his home and the land that he's used to. God tells Abraham that he'll give him descendants, even though Abraham is super old and has no children. And God says he'll give Abraham a covenant relationship. The descendants of Abraham will be God's own chosen people, and they'll relate to God in a unique way. God says that through this chosen group of people, the whole world will be blessed. Abraham and his descendants will have special access to God. They'll be blessed with God's favor and protection. And they are to, in turn, be God's representatives who will show the world who God is and what he's like. They're blessed in order to be a blessing to the world. Genesis continues by tracing Abraham's family line because God keeps his promise in providing Abraham with descendants. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons who become known as the Hebrew people or the 12 tribes of Israel. At the end of Genesis, God's people have moved to Egypt to survive a famine, but there they become enslaved. In Exodus, we see God raise up Moses to be the leader of the Israelites, and God uses Moses to rescue his people out of slavery in Egypt. They leave Egypt and begin their march towards the promised land, the land God promised to their forefather, Abraham. Leviticus is all about how to be the people of God. After living as a conquered people in Egypt for hundreds of years, this is a fragile time in Israel's history as they're gaining independence and learning what it means to be a self-governing entity. God has some really specific ways that he wants people to live if they are to be in a special covenant relationship with him. Later on in the New Testament, Jesus will reflect back on these laws and he'll say, you know how I'd sum up all these laws into what's most important? Love God and love people. Do those things and you'll be good. And then we get to Numbers. The title in our Bible, Numbers, isn't all that helpful. It's the English translation of the book's Greek title, which was given to it because of the censuses found in chapters 1 through 4 and in chapter 26. But the Hebrew title of the book means in the wilderness, and that's a better description of the book's contents. When you think numbers, think in the wilderness. Numbers is a travel log 
that, that records Israel's time in the wilderness of Sinai. The book of Numbers is obsessed with the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to give him land. Remember, God has already fulfilled the other two aspects of Abraham's blessing. He gave him descendants and a covenant relationship. But at this point, coming out of slavery, the people of Israel didn't have their own land. At the beginning of the book of Numbers, it's clear that the land of Canaan is the promised land. And so Israel is headed towards that, getting ready to overtake it. We read the first several chapters of the book thinking that any day now they're going to march on in and claim Canaan as the land God promised they'd inhabit. The people of Israel have been camped at Mount Sinai for a year, receiving instructions from God and getting in their groove of what it means to be the people of God. And now they're ready and gearing up to go. They even celebrate a Passover, and it's like, hey, remember how we escaped from Egypt? How God miraculously rescued us and led us out into this brand new chapter of our lives as a free people? Well, now we're about to be on the move again, and we're heading into a new exciting chapter. God is going to finally, after one whole year, lead us to victory as we enter the promised land. Bible scholar Gordon Wenham summarizes the first 10 chapters of Numbers this way. Numbers begins with a series of directions, organizing the people to march from Sinai to the promised land. The tribes are counted, their arrangement in the camp and on the march is specified. The unclean are expelled from the community. The altar and the Levites are dedicated to the service of God and a second Passover is celebrated. The nation is now ready to begin the advance towards Canaan. In chapter 13, Moses sends some spies to go explore Canaan and bring back a report. Moses tells them, see what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So a group of spies go and explore for 40 days, and then when they come back, two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, are like, it was awesome. You wanted to know if there was fruit? There was fruit. Check this out. There was a single cluster of grapes. It was so big that two of us had to carry it on a pole between us. Look, and here's some pomegranates and figs that we got. It was amazing. I can't wait for us to live here. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. But the other spies who had gone with them say something else. They say, yeah, all that's true. The soil is good and the land is very prosperous, but the people who live there are powerful and their cities are fortified and very large. The people there are big and strong. We don't think we can take them. They were scared. And so they spread this bad report among the rest of the people. And then hear what happens next. This passage is long, so I'll summarize parts, but listen closely. It's super important in the book of Numbers and in the history of Israel. Numbers chapter 14 says, That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt, to slavery. Great plan. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua and Caleb tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. 
If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them, Joshua and Caleb. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I've performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. But how about this, Moses? I'll make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Moses says, no, no, don't do that. I'm sorry we've messed up again. Will you forgive us? And the Lord replied, I have forgiven them, as you asked. Nevertheless, tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who is counted in the census and who has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land, I swore, with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb and Joshua. As for your children, that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and will know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which is banded together against me. They will meet their end in this wilderness. Here they will die. You can feel God's exasperation with his people, can't you? He's saying, why won't you just trust me? Do you really think I brought you all this way only to abandon you now? Do you not believe that I desire to bless you? He says, you don't want to go in to this amazing land I've prepared for you? Fine. You don't have to. The people reject the promised land, the land God so badly wants to give to them, to bless them with. And he honors their choice. This is why Israel had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, one year for each day the spies were exploring Canaan. And after that time, when the disobedient, whining, complaining, grumbling generation had died off, then the younger generation would be able to enter the land. If you were here on January 1st, Norton introduced us to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and he said that the specific theme for the book of Numbers was failures and consequences. And we see that here. Israel fails to trust God. They don't believe that he's big or strong enough to protect them from the people living in Canaan or that he's devoted enough to them to keep his promise. And here's their consequence. God will keep his promise, but they won't get to be a part of it. We'll pick up Israel's travel journey next week, but I want to give you three themes to keep in mind as you read through the book of Numbers. And these are things we've seen already today. As you read, pay attention to these three things. Number one, the people of Israel fail and there are consequences. Wandering for 40 years in the wilderness is a big consequence for a big failure. And you'll notice other failures and other consequences as you read as well. Number two, God is present with his people in the wilderness. As you read, you'll see that even though Israel fails over and over, God is still with them. I think this is an important theme for us today, too. 
We sometimes find ourselves in a place that feels like the wilderness or desert. Maybe at times our experience of the wilderness is self-inflicted and is a consequence for some disobedience or failure. Sometimes that happens. But oftentimes that's not the case. Oftentimes we find ourselves in a wilderness period due to circumstances that are beyond our control. We all face hard times or maybe a season where you feel like you're wandering aimlessly. And we can look to Israel and be reminded that just like God was faithful to them and was present with them even in the wilderness, God is faithful to be present with us too. It might not always feel like it, but God doesn't desert his people even when they're in the wilderness. The third theme to look for as we read is this, God desires to bless his people in the wilderness. Norton said in his introduction to the Pentateuch that the overarching theme throughout the Pentateuch is that God wants to bless his people. Over and over we read about God providing for and protecting and rescuing his people. In Numbers we see that even though God's people have been disobedient, ungrateful, and unfaithful to God, God is always faithful to them. Even in the wilderness, God is still with his people. And not only does God not abandon his people when they fail, but he actively desires to bless them. I want to spend a few minutes talking about this idea of blessing because I don't think we always fully understand what that means. The standard Oxford English Dictionary definition of blessing is God's favor and protection. That seems pretty straightforward. But the way we tend to use the word blessing in our culture often feels trite or superficial or sometimes even ironic. We've all seen people use the word blessing in ways that make our stomachs turn, right? Hashtag blessed, doesn't that just make you want to throw up in your mouth a little bit? Or too blessed to be stressed? I guarantee if you walk into a Hobby Lobby, you'll see that on a pillow or a sign or a journal or something. Or what about those Southern people who say, bless your heart when they're really meaning not that? <laughs> we use the word blessing really broadly to describe doing something to benefit someone else. An act of kindness can be a blessing. But another way to bless someone is with our words. I bet for some of us, the way we use words of blessing most often is when people sneeze. They sneeze and we say, God bless you. It's a knee-jerk reaction. We aren't even thinking about it. We just hear a sneeze and say, bless you. For many of us, the ways we've thought about what it means to give and receive blessings has been superficial at best or confusing and unhelpful at worst. But the language of blessing in the Bible is rich and has depth and meaning to it. So I want to help us reclaim that as we explore numbers these next couple weeks. Verbal blessings were a regular part of speech in ancient Israel. In an ancient Israelite's mindset, a blessing was a speech act that they believed would actually literally bring about good in someone's life because of the blessing that was spoken. Dads blessed their sons before they died. You may have noticed this while reading through Genesis. The verbal blessing had the legal power to transfer the ownership of land or possessions from one generation to the next. Kings would bless their subjects, especially on big occasions. But ordinary people would also exchange blessings more casually, saying things like, the Lord be with you, or the Lord bless you, as greetings. I'm not sure if they said it when people sneezed. Maybe they did. I don't know. And then priests would bless people as a regular part of their worship in Israel and throughout the ancient world. What's maybe the most famous blessing in the Bible is tucked away in the book of Numbers. It's called the priestly blessing, and what makes this blessing really cool is that this is straight from God to the priest, instructing them in how he wants them to bless people. 
So it's not a blessing from one person to another, but from God to people. If you don't hear anything else today, listen to this, because this is how God desires to bless his people, and it is anything but superficial or trite. Numbers 6, starting in verse 22, says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. This is a beautiful blessing. It's a poem made up of three lines in Hebrew. In each line, the Lord is the subject. And when we see Lord in all caps in our Bibles, that really means Yahweh, which is the name God used to reveal himself to Moses in Exodus. It's the personal name for God that shows his close, special relationship to Israel. So each line says Yahweh and then is followed by two verbs. And the second verb expands upon the first. The first line is may God Yahweh bless you and keep you. Blessing is a broad term, but there are some specific ways that God blesses people in the Old Testament. So when we read, may Yahweh bless you, you should um, have in your mind God's desire to bless his people with children, land, health, possessions, and with his presence. Keep you implies keeping from harm. The second line is, may Yahweh make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. This is a metaphor where God is light, shining like the sun, and his face is smiling on you. You know that feeling you get when you move from the shade to stand and bask in the sun, and it just feels so warm and cozy? That's this. You're warm in God's light. He's smiling down on you, and you know that you're safe and that all is well. It's like you're being held in his arms in a warm embrace. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. What does it mean to be gracious? Gordon Wenham describes it this way. When God smiles on his people, they can be sure that he will be gracious to them. That is, he will deliver them from all their troubles. He will answer their prayers and save them from their enemies, sickness, and sin. The third line says, may Yahweh turn his face toward you and give you peace. This one's less about smiling and more about paying attention. To turn his face toward you means that Yahweh is paying attention to you, to your prayers, and to your needs. Each line of this blessing gets longer and longer, and the content gets richer and deeper until it culminates into the final word, which is shalom. We tend to translate this as peace, but that doesn't mean just peace as opposed to war or even a sense of inner peace. It includes those things, but the concept of shalom is really layered and is a picture of wholeness, where everything is good. Shalom is everything the way it should be. May Yahweh pay attention to you and give you every good gift, health, wholeness, well-being, prosperity, salvation, peace. This blessing is not just about God meeting Israel's immediate needs or answering their every request in the moment. It's a bigger promise than that. It communicates his desire to give them every good thing. And even when things don't go their way or they find themselves wandering in the wilderness, he will be with them and protect them and pay attention to them and lovingly care for and provide for them. And eventually he will redeem and restore them and make them whole. God desires these things for us as well. So the first theme is the people of Israel fail and there are consequences. The second theme is God is present with his people in the wilderness. And the third theme to watch for as you read is that God desires to bless his people. 
Do you believe that God desires to bless you? Do you believe that God loves you and wants good things for you? Even when you fail, or even when life is hard and you feel like you're wandering in the wilderness. Maybe you can't see God at work or feel his presence right now, but this is still the truth. He's not far away. He's right there in it with you. Maybe it's easy for you to see God's blessings today, but if it's not, I hope you'll cling on to these words of blessing and see that this is God's heart for all who follow him. Yes, the book of Numbers is a book about failures and consequences, and these are easy to spot, but it's also about God's presence with his people and his desire to bless them. And that gives us encouragement and hope because now, as followers of Jesus, we are the people of God. And even when life gets tough, we can be certain that God is with us and that he wants to bless us and make us whole. I'm going to play a part of a song, and I want you to close your eyes and listen to these words. Let this blessing wash over you. And if you're in a season where it's hard for you to believe these things, use this time to talk to God about that. He's big enough to handle all our pain and questions and doubts and unbelief when we find ourselves in the wilderness.
to do three things this week. First, whether or not you're doing the whole reading the Bible in a year plan, I'd encourage you to jump in and follow along with the plan to read through all of Numbers in the next two weeks. And as you read, keep an eye out for the three themes, the people of Israel fail and there are consequences. God is present with his people in the wilderness and God desires to bless his people in the wilderness. Second, I'd encourage you to read Numbers 6, 24 through 26. That's the priestly blessing every morning and evening this week. Start and end your day with those words to remember God's heart and his posture towards you. And third, I'd encourage you to listen to the song we just listened to. It's The Blessing by Carrie Job. Listen to it once a day this week, maybe when you're driving or washing the dishes or getting ready in the morning. Make this a soundtrack of your week so that these words of blessing keep running through your head. The next two weeks, we're going to be diving into two specific stories in the book of Numbers. And I'm guessing that as you read, these might be stories that intrigue you or pique your interest. You might have questions about them or wonder why they're even included in the Bible. Numbers has quite a few odd stories in it. So while we won't tackle all of them, we will be exploring two of them. So come back next week as we talk about a bizarre story in the book of Numbers and what it has to do with God's blessing in the wilderness. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge that we fail over and over. We're just like Israel. And yet you don't desert us. You are with us. You seek to bless us. We thank you for that, God. This just shows so clearly your heart, who you are, and your attitude towards even the most disobedient or unfaithful people. I pray that you will help us to trust you, to follow you, to be obedient to you, God, that we can experience your blessing in our lives. I pray that you'll show your presence to us more and more. Maybe some of us haven't felt your presence ever or in a long time, God, and so I pray that you will reveal yourself to us more and more this week, God. I pray that, that even when we are in the wilderness, that uh, we'll know that you are not far from us, that you're still seeking our good. And I pray that we'll respond to you with hearts full of gratitude and praise. In your name, amen. Thanks, Emily.